Hi, thank you for calling for joining uh, the Miko Pellet Hour. This is Miko Pellet. Before I tell you who my guest is, I'm going to tell you a story. And the story happened about 10 years ago. I received a message on Facebook from a Facebook friend asking me if I uh, would like to visit Gaza. This was about 2013. And I said, yes. And then the next message uh, that came from that same friend was, would you be willing to come through the subway? And at that moment, I knew that it would be worth to do absolutely anything possible just to meet that person. And over the year, that person has become a very good friend. Unfortunately, we're always living on different continents, but he's a kind of friend that you wish you could meet every day, a couple of times a week. So far, we were able to meet in Gaza during that visit. We met in Malaysia. We spoke together in New Zealand, here in the United States. We met in Turkey a couple of times, in Cyprus. And that guest is none other than my good, good friend, uh, Yusuf Al-Jamal, Dr. Yusuf Al-Jamal. So thank you for joining me, my good friend. You are in Istanbul right now, I know that. You are from Gaza, but when I remember when we talked about where you're from, you said, you told me about where your family was from before before they were uh, they were forced to go into Gaza. So can you tell us a little bit about where your family's from and where you're from in Gaza? Thank you very much, uh, Miko, for having me and good to meet you online this time. 70% um, of the population of Gaza are refugees. There are eight refugee camps and my family ended up in Nusayarat refugee camp. And uh, Gaza is one of the, um, you know, most precious places that we, we love, but we're not from Gaza. We come from a town called Aqir, which is very close to uh, Lod and Ramle, and it's called Kiryat Ekron today. There's a settlement there uh, built on um, some lands confiscated from Palestinians. And uh, my family had to flee the village in 1948 at uh, gunpoint. In fact, my great-grandfather was killed in the village just before his kids had, had to leave. And... Uh, uh, they ended up in Nusayarat in Gaza, and they've been living there. I mean, they 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 lived in uh, Rafah for um, a couple of years, but then they ended up in Nusayarat, and they've been living in Nusayarat since 1950. Uh, so we are refugees. We're not from Nusayarat originally, but I've never visited this town. It's now part of Israel and Palestinians, including my family cannot go there and visit and live there. Um, they live in refugee camps and uh, our refugee camp uh, turned into an open air prison and uh, a concentration camp. And now it's being turned into an extermination camp where our people are being massacred 24 seven for the past two months. Now the Nusayrat, before it was a refugee camp, it was something else, right? What was Nusayrat? So Nusayarat is a name of an Arab tribe that lived in, in, in the area, and it was uh, an empty uh, 
almost empty land, like open fields. And um, in fact, uh, just uh, six years before Nusayarat became a refugee camp, um, 1,000 Greek refugees ended up there. Um, and they, at the time, they uh, ran away from Nazis who invaded their island. And uh, they ended up in Nusayarat. They lived there for a year before their island was liberated and they were allowed to go back. Um, but then Nusayarat became a refugee camp when, um, you know, dozens of uh, villages from the greater Gaza area were uh, leveled to the ground, depopulated at gunpoint in 1948 by Zionist militias. Wasn't and there the, a- uh, a British camp there or something? I remember you telling me there was one gate. So yeah. So I grew up in Block A in Nusayarat, and the Block A used to be a, a prison uh, where Ottoman soldiers um, who were captured during the war um, with Anzac, the Allied forces, were brought and, and, and put there and in the prison or in, in the camp and this particular camp is actually my neighborhood now and uh, my family lives there still and the way in and out of the uh, neighborhood uh, is the actual gate of that prison so i grew up in what used to be a prison in in the biggest open air prison in the world the gaza strip um and you know, block A and what we call locally uh, Al Kalabosh, it has to do with the chains because it was a, pr- a prison. It's an Egyptian slang for for chains. Um, comes from the Turkish word Kalabcha, Kalabosh, which means chains. Uh, is where I grew up, and it's very crowded. And uh, I remember Israeli um, patrol units, you know, watching people coming in and out. Of, of the neighborhood, they always had a patrol unit, Mishmarig Fool, watching us and especially trying to capture kids who, who threw stones at them, but also searching people coming in and out and sometimes humiliating them, including my dad, who was once asked to dance to entertain Israeli soldiers, um, 18, 19 years old, armed to the teeth, as he was coming back from his daily um, job in Israel. Uh, but he was smart enough and he, he uh, told them that, okay, he will dance. They wanted to humiliate him because all his friends and neighbors were on the other side of the street. And and he had no other option and he, he had to agree. Otherwise, they would like uh, beat him or kill him or torture him or you never know what, what would happen to him. So you and he asked... Let me interrupt you for just a second. I want you to finish the story, but let me interrupt you just a second. Your family has gone through a lot. A lot over the years, starting with your great grandfather, I believe, who was a fighter, or, your, or was it your grandfather? But um, you uh, spent your life studying and writing and um, speaking. You just got your PhD. You've uh, you're probably one of the most positive people I've ever met, and I want to talk a little bit about your background and to understand how you became who you are. So finish the story about your father, because I think it's very important, of course. But then if you can talk... You know, about- I, yeah, I like telling the story. So my father had to agree to to the demands and requests or orders uh, to be um, correct of the Israeli uh, soldiers. And he, he asked them to clap for him. He wanted some vibes. 
And it's, you know, it's the worst thing on, on earth is to ask an Arab father to dance in the street. And, uh, but he had no other option, as he said. And once they started clapping, they put their guns aside and he picked up his slippers and, and, and he ran away and disappeared in the horizon. He went into this orange, orange um, orchard and he climbed one of the high trees and he hid there until it was sunset time. They kept looking for him and there were all types of rumors about his fate, that he was killed, injured tortured, kidnapped, etc. And then his parents were so worried about him, they were crying and um, they they looked for him everywhere in, in the refugee camp and they couldn't find him. And then my dad went to a nearby mosque and made the call for prayer. At the time, he used to, mock, to, to, to make um, the call for prayers. And that's how he communicated with his parents. Once they heard his, his, his voice, they would tell that he was okay. And uh, when the Israeli forces um, left the area at night, he came back home. Uh, so this is the story of, of my dad. So it's a multi-generational you know, struggle from my great-grandfather who was killed and then my grandfather who died in a refugee camp waiting to return to my father who was humiliated by Israeli um, forces. Also, two of my siblings were lost their lives because of um, the siege and because of invasions, Israeli incursions in, into our refugee camp. And I thought, you know, it's people have to know um, about our story. And, um, you know, these days we uh, also, uh, a lot of people uh, across the globe are talking about the uh, tragic loss of uh, Dr. Rifat Larair, who taught me the love of storytelling. And I thought, um, you know, I have to tell the story of my family. So I have engaged in writing uh, for the past probably 15 years or less, telling the story of, of my family um, under occupation. And, um, you know, the stories of, of people on the ground. And just because, you know, very often when Gaza is portrayed, um, we're, we're portrayed as numbers. And every one of us in Gaza has a story. And I wanted to tell these stories based on my family's experience. So I I, I uh, majored in English language and literature uh, and uh, I did my MA in international and strategic studies in, in Malaysia. And I did my PhD in uh, Middle Eastern studies in Turkey and I um, obtained my PhD uh, in, in February this year. Uh, so this is, this is my background, but I have also you know, I've been writing nonstop about Palestine, Gaza, and the history of Gaza, Palestinians, and personal stories of, of people. And I contributed a um, short story to Gaza Rights Back, which was edited by Rafat Larair, who I became a friend with. Uh, over the years, we studied together in Malaysia. I was there for my MA. He was there for my PhD, uh, for his PhD, and I, I uh, met him there, and I got to know him closely. Um, and I think you met him at the time, um, both both in Gaza also in the United States. Um, I wrote features and, you know, journal articles. I translated books about Palestinian political prisoners or Palestinian Irish hunger strikers, Palestinian child prisoners. So that's my mission in life is to tell the story and write now. Can you tell the story about your how your brother was killed and how your sister was was killed? 
So my brother was 17 and there was an Israeli incursion into our refugee camp. And I think at the time I was 14, I, I was um, too young. Uh, and um, year was this? Uh, 13, I think that was 20, uh, 2004. Um, 14 or 13 Palestinians were killed uh, on that day. And... Uh, my brother was one of them. He was shot by Israeli snipers and he was left to bleed um, until he lost his life. And my sister needed a permit. She was 26 years old in 2007 to have a minor surgery, which was not uh, available in Gaza uh, because of the siege. And then she applied for an Israeli permit to have it in Jerusalem, but she got a rejection. So she was waiting at the hospital for a whole week. Her health got really bad. And then when she was able to leave Gaza through Egypt, it was too late. Once uh, she arrived in Cairo, she had the surgery, but her, her body was too uh, weak to handle it. And then she, she lost her life. I mean, these are typical, not, not really uh, unique stories. They... What are their names? So my brother's name is Omar and my sister's name is, is Zainab. And, you know, I just wanted to say these are not... Uh, unique stories, these are typical stories. Now we have um, at least um, 27,000 Palestinians killed in Gaza in the span of two months. So every single one in Gaza lost a family member. And even before October 7, um, everyone was impacted by the siege and by the occupation in a way or another. Either you have your you know family member killed or arrested or denied exit or losing a scholarship or living under siege without a job for almost two decades. And so this was our life. And even the daily struggle of, of uh, living in Gaza, where 97% of Gaza's water uh, is unfit for a human consumption, where you have to deal with eight to 16 hours of electricity outages per day for 17 years in a row. It's a horrible life there. And the population is increasing. And, 1948, the population of Gaza was 100,000. It has tripled overnight because of the influx of Palestinian refugees. It's similar to what's happening today. The influx of displaced Palestinians from the north of Gaza to the south. And um, over the years, the population of Gaza has increased and mounted from 300,000 to, to 2.3 million today. And the Gaza's land and space has been shrinking from 553 kilometers to um, today 356 kilometers. And, and it's very tiny and the population is just increasing and you know, life you. is getting worse yeah, every day. Did you ever hear stories uh, from your grandfather or anyone, any of the older people, about what it was like before 1948? In other words, what was Gaza like before 1948? So your village was not far from from where from Gaza, really. So I'm sure people commuted, and there was. Can you? Did you? Yeah. Is about that. So I. Uh, uh, you know, the, the I have a friend in Gaza. He's 90 years old. I, I hope he survived the massacre. Uh, his name is Ahmed Al-Hajj. You met him. He was in shot at a refugee camp. I've been trying to reach out to him. And he, he told me many stories because in 1948, he was 15 years old. He was politically aware. And uh, he would commute to Gaza 
for his school. He was at uh, the Imam Shafi'i school and he would come from Sawafir, uh, which was not too far from Gaza. My grandfather passed away before I was born. My grandmother um, passed away when I was five. So most of these stories I, I heard about life before Nakba, before 1948, were from my aunt, uh, who was um, a few days old when the village was depopulated. So her mom told her these stories. Um, you know, they cultivated the land. Life was very simple. There was a school in, in, in the village. Everyone loved each other. Everyone knew each other. Um, and my grandmother comes from a big family, Abu Rahma family. So they owned uh, much land and they, they had a very happy life, very simple, peasant um, uh, life. And all of a sudden, they ended up in Gaza with, with nothing. And Ahmed al-Hajj would, would tell me how his uh, father owned, owned land and he sent him to school. He wanted him to, to, to get education and he would reward him um, if he gets, you know, high, high grades and how he had to crawl on the ground from El Fallujah village, which was under siege, to Gaza, so that he could continue his his education, and I think this is something something re remarkable that Palestinians before 1948 and today they're still investing in education. We see the Israeli war targeting educational institutions um, in in a place like Gaza that has one of the highest literacy rates in, in the world, with 98.5 uh, percent of people. Um, literate, but to go back to, to life before 1948, as I said, it was very simple. Uh, people were happy, they owned land, they cultivated the land, they planted the land, they would wake up very early in the morning to take care of the land, and they would sleep um, early so that they could wake up in the next day. And that's, that was their life. They they had a very peaceful life. There, there was a Palestinian society. Um, there was a cultural life in Palestine. We had airports. Lod Airport was established before Israel was established, and it was very close to my village, Aqar. In fact, um, the airport uh, is built partially on, on lands belonging um, to my ancestral village, and we had a cultural scene in, in, in Palestine. We had writers, we had newspapers in, in, in English and other languages. Uh, we had cinemas and rail, you know, um, uh, roads, etc. We, we, we had everything in Palestine. And there are some Palestinians who joke that Israel, um, when Israel was established, they took Palestine furnished. So it was yeah. ready for, for them to take. And uh... Well, let me ask you... Um... Uh, two things I want to talk about before we have to go. Um, I know your family, I want to go back to what happened after October the 7th. I know your family suffered some great losses. Can you talk about that? And, I, and the reason I'm asking, yeah. is to tell you why I'm asking, I'm asking specifically, that's why I asked about your brother and sister and, and, and so on. And I want to talk about Rifat as well, before we close. But, you know, you, you talked about numbers and how Palestinians are considered numbers. And it's true, and I think that the, the victims are also numbers. 10,000, 20,000, 1,000, this killed, that killed. And it's never personal, you know? It's always just out there, these numbers. And I think it's really important to make it personal so people can pause and, and just think about how how horrible it really is. It's not just numbers. It's actually people. It's relatives. It's 
father's so mother. my I lost a total of 11 people and you know this is uh I want I don't want to talk about numbers but I need to tell some stories but this number quote unquote is not really big compared to what other Palestinians have lost and I know families who lost 150 people and it's really horrible where some families have completely uh, been erased from the civil uh, registry. But in my family's case, my father's cousin, um, the house of my father's cousins was targeted and my father's um, cousin was was killed. He was a retired nurse who worked um, for almost 40 years serving Gaza's patients. His name was Azmi and he lost his um, two of his uh, daughters and one one of his uh, sons and his grandchildren. His wife was also killed. And I I just learned um, two days ago that the wife of one of his uh, children who survived was also killed, uh, lost her life. She she's come to 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 her wounds because uh, of poison resulting from the lack of medicine. Um, in Gaza today, uh, so her, her life would have been saved otherwise. But again, this is another issue: the lack of medicine and food in Gaza today. Um, also, my 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 cousin was was, called, was killed, uh, and um, I because of the blackout, I was not able to communicate with my family properly. But I read recently that his body evaporated altogether; they couldn't find it, and. Um, you know, that he, he was about to get married. In fact, his engagement party was on October 7th that was cancelled and, and he lost his life. And, you know, these are the stories of, of people and Rifat and many others. My That's timeline had... I'm sorry. My I... timeline had... Yeah, just to tell you, my timeline has turned into a graveyard, literally. I, I don't want to refresh it because every time I do, I see someone who I know somehow, or knew somehow, or just saw on the street being killed. It's it's just terrible. I want to go back to Rifat. Maybe you can talk about him some more. But what's interesting, I mean, I met him. Uh, you knew him well. A lot of people on social media, his pictures everywhere. He really touched a lot of lives. And it seems like it reminds me a little bit when um, Razan was killed, the, the, the paramedic, during the Gaza march something about her, like she became a symbol, you know, so many were killed, but somehow from time to time, there's somebody who just re represents that uh, to a lot of people. Something about him touched so many people. Can you talk about him a little bit more about his work, about who he was? So Rifat has a uh, PhD in English uh, literature. He loved literature and he was a very serious uh, lecturer. Uh, you wouldn't get grades easily from him but you would get a lot of knowledge um, if you work hard. And he appreciated students who worked hard and he loved them. And that's why when he was killed, a lot of his students, he trained at least a thousand people in, in Gaza um, to write and to tell, he believed in the power of storytelling. So he trained these young people, whether at school or outside school, where he taught English literature at the Islamic University. In, he, he was the head of the English department. And um, he, he was killed by an Israeli strike on um, December 6th. And uh, I spoke to his wife and she told me that they only knew about his killing the following day because 
again because of the blackout and he was at his sister's house and uh, one of the neighbors uh, got into the house after it was bombed and he uh, found uh, their bodies torn into pieces and he he uh, buried them at a nearby clinic even his family doesn't know where where his grave is and this person told them that he would show them the graves after the end of the war um so this is how rifat was his life was uh, cut short um, but to go back to rifat as a human being he was a person of joy he loved literature one of our friends once joked that he puts his uh, Shakespeare's uh, novels uh, under his uh, pillow when he sleeps to this extent he was into Shakespeare and English literature he was universal in his classroom and uh, the same as he was universal teaching us about Malcolm X he was the first one to uh, introduce us to Malcolm X and Edgar Alambo um, John Donne he did his PhD on John Donne he did his MA uh, on Jerusalem in Israeli and Palestinian literature, the poetry, to, to be particular. In fact, he taught uh, Israeli uh, poetry in, in his classes in Gaza. And um, the way he taught us, um, uh, like uh, novels like, uh, sorry, uh, plays like Merchants of, of uh, Venice, the Merchants of Venice, he got us to appreciate characters like Shylock. Uh, a Jewish character. Um, so he, he was uh, revolutionary, the same as John Donne was. He challenged the status quo and the discourse, and he, he wanted us to believe that we can tell our story. So he invested in storytelling. He organized many workshops, countless, to train young people on creative writing and short stories, and he edited Gaza Writes Back and Gaza unsilenced and we were in the States in 2014 where we met and Atlanta and other places talking about Gaza rights back and the power of storytelling and he believed yeah. in storytelling and literature because he thought it was universal and it could be read in a hundred years and everyone can can read it and uh, he wanted to tell the story of, of Gaza the Palestinian side of the story and he got to love storytelling from his grandmother, and in, in, in fact, and uh, he he spoke about this in one of his TEDx talks. You can find it uh, on YouTube in 2015. Um, so he invested his time and energy in his students, and he loved them so much. When he publishes, and he got dozens of his students to publish articles and stories from Gaza. He was a co-founder of We Are Not Numbers. And uh, every time a student of his would publish a story or an article, he would feel so happy about it. That was his uh, mission in life. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. We have to. We have to go. We have to close now. Uh, we're running out of time. If people want, I I, I I want to talk about your writing. If really quickly, if people want to find the stuff that you write, because you write fantastic, uh, fantastic stuff. Um, how do people find your writing, your work? So I write articles for the different publications, the Electronic Intifada, Mondo Wise, Politics Today. I had my blog um, in the past, and but people can find me on, on Twitter. I publish my writings there. Best, my best handle is on, on Twitter, yeah. 
yeah, you can put it on on the screen probably. It's uh, at y o u s e f al jamal a l j a m a l. Um, that's and also I have contributions to some books like Light in Gaza, Gaza Writes Back, uh, A Shared Struggle, Stories of Palestine and Irish Hunger Strikers, Dreaming of Freedom, Stories of pa- uh, Palestine and Child Prisoners. Uh, so people can uh, find some of my works there. You know, just as he was talking about Rifat, I want to say one more word. If, and to finish the interview with that, there's a famous song that's sung by Paul Robeson about Joe Hill, the legendary organizer, labor organizer. And there's a line where it says, where he where he sings, "It takes more than guns to kill a man," and that he will never die because of his work, because of the contributions that he made to mankind. So uh, that that reminded me of. Uh, so the story about the Rifat reminded me of that line, and I think uh, he will remember it clearly um you know by his people and and everybody around because you can see on social media that he was loved and respected by so many anyway Yusuf my friend thank you so much for your time um I wish we had more time to talk but we'll have to do some more uh at another time so my guest was uh Dr Yusuf Al-Jamal a good friend old friend of mine and this is the Miko Pellet Hour and I'll see you next time <laughs>